0: welcome to episode 84 of the hilo the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalist dolly alderton and pandora sykes welcome back welcome back to you pish pish Have you missed us? Have you missed me, Dolly? I have missed you. It's nice to
1: finally talk to you again, because uh, Pandora and I have it written into our respective contracts that we cannot communicate outside of recording time in the studio, (laughs) because the powers that be um, are worried about using up good material. Good material. So the only way that we can speak to each other is when there are two microphones turning over and Charlie Jones is present as a third
0: party in the room good material i think that's being generous <laughs> well i haven't missed you as i've been listening to the glorious love stories oh thanks Angel. anyone that's not familiar that's dolly's other podcast she didn't think that the hilo was enough work so um she thought she'd <laughs> do a whole nother one but may i recommend but actually both episodes so far of this uh series very enjoyable stanley tucci Thank and you. jessica um absolutely obsessed with Matteo. that's an in joke He's. I, I really want to meet Mateo, this is Stanley Tucci's son Listen to find out more <laughs> Listen to find out more And you're back this week with iCal Not to be confused with iCal Everything I know about love, yes Back with a bang,
1: not really We're tired this time round Back with a feeble little <laughs> A feeble little beep um, <laughs> yes this is the only time I'm going to talk about it and I promise I will not talk about that
0: sodding book again so it's coming out in paperback coming that's why you're doing
1: another back, tour coming out in paperback this Thursday with a brand new chapter on turning 30 and the meltdown that I had about yeah, I love that. getting older and confronting the inevitability of death and decay and uh, there are some <laughs> jokes as well and everything I know about love at 30 so yes that's a brand new kind of section of the book that I would like you to read
0: so desperate was I to read it that it came in its own Uber oh yes I put it in an Uber for Pandora there is nothing better than an Uber turning up and then you open like the door and on the back seat is either like a shoe you left behind that you suddenly realise you like desperately need on, for a meeting a red velvet or a book shoe. or it's just as often the way with me a set of keys dangled out the <laughs> driver's window <laughs> so bloody yes usage.
1: I don't think that is the
0: correct um usage of uber
1: but anyway so yes that's out I didn't even pull it I couldn't risk that shit I felt quite mad coming out of my flat and just placing the paperback proof of my book <laughs> on, on a back pin. seat for you also just before we're accused of like extraordinary decadence which that is it's because Pandora very generously was quoting that
0: chapter for something so that's why i I actually think i didn't even quote that chapter but someone stolen my copy no i was quoting another lovely bit on love um for a video that i was doing um which is coming out at some point soon actually
1: and also this week i'm published in france germany denmark and i was also published in the netherlands before christmas so please do buy those because no one knows who the fuck I am over there. That would be great. I'm also back on tour from Thursday and there are still tickets to see me in Exeter, Matinee in Brighton, Edinburgh, and I think that's it. Uh, anyway, I'll do...
0: So those are the places where you're loved a little bit less?
1: Yeah, that, that literally, it's, it really is obvious that no one knows who the fuck I am. <laughs> it's, it's
0: very sobering. So, three um, tickets sold in Exeter basically
1: that's my fucking
0: home I'm laughing, I'm laughing because I wasn't really sure if that was a kind
1: No, to say no no, no it's true <laughs> there's nothing that's more confronting about how localized <laughs> any vague readership is than than doing a national tour I'm very excited about
0: buying a little book that you've written it was very generous of you to, to call it a book. It is a little book, though. It is a very little book. Um, yes, I've spent the last few months writing a long essay called The Authentic Lie for an independent crowdfunding publisher called The Pound Project. Some of you may remember that Dolly did this last year with a gorgeous little essay called Hopeless Romantic. And my essay, The Authentic Lie, starts crowdfunding today. I love the idea of the Pound Project ever it's since you did it. It's such a good idea. I'd really wanted to... It's,
1: it's about... it's it's uh, The ethos is about respecting both writers and readers and basically you pay as little as a pound to have access to this beautiful essay. I haven't read it yet. could be rubbish. I'm pretty sure it will be beautiful. And I can't wait to read the... The subject matter, I think, is so, so timely for now as well. And you either have it in an audio copy or online or you get these beautiful little booklets of the essay that come that I think makes such nice presents for people so um
0: they're the size of little wallpaper guides yeah. i used to collect wallpaper guides um before i stopped buying city guides because you can just go onto a hashtag on instagram yeah and they're the same um size as those so yeah it's quite nice having little mini books you can find the link on my twitter and instagram but here it is as well it's www.poundproject.co.uk the authentic lie is about our modern obsession with authenticity seeking it anchoring it framing it in a hyper-curated world, I look at womanhood, the internet, the self, bodies, celebrity culture, with the help of the words of lots of other brilliant writers, one of whom, Elizabeth Day, an award-winning author and friend of the Hilo, kindly wrote me a foreword, which is perhaps a reason to pledge a pound for my essay, even if you don't want to read what I have to say. You can just read what she has to say said. Actually, I'm really proud of the essay, so let those they be my last be. words on it, instead of some self-deprecating waffle about how you really shouldn't read it god women are the worst long form essays really really hard to do and oh
1: that's my tummy sorry (laughs) long form essays particularly long form non-fiction i think is really difficult and it's it's so so important to be discussing this right now you know with everything that's going on with visibility of intention online etc etc
0: uh, Fingers crossed! <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I can't wait to read it. While we're on the subject of paying for content, I would like to flag a fundraising page by Julia Kingsford and say thank you so much to Julia Kingsford um, for doing this on behalf of um, freelance writers and staff writers in this case. The Pool, uh, which is an online women's magazine, which we regularly quote from and read from and talk about their articles on um, the show has sadly gone into administration which is incredibly sad
0: as it was um a brilliant platform my mother-in-law was just saying this morning how sad she was that it's gone so it's very cross generational yeah yeah it was
1: and I think it was also just a great platform uh uncensored uninterrupted platform for young women so it's very sad that a platform like that has been taken away and what's even more sad is that it's it's folded while leaving thousands and thousands of um, pounds of debts to unpaid freelancers who have filed work and who are waiting to be paid. And the staff at the pool were unpaid for a month. Mm. So this fundraising page was set up to raise some cash for basically all the free content we've been consuming
0: all I of us her for a number of years it. Julia who was like I don't write at the pool I don't actually know anyone at the pool but I really liked it she was like I've put an arbitrary sum of 24 grand as the target because I know that 24 people work there but, you know, so that's the idea that everyone, mm. each was like, even though this will be woefully below what they're mm. owed, mm. at least everyone can have a thousand kind of pounds mm. each. But of course, it I am sure it will surpass that. And also there's freelancers who, you know, I know freelancers owed about three grand.
1: Yeah, that. and, I, you know, I feel so strongly about this. I'm so, so lucky, just to lay my cards on the table now, I am so lucky that for the last two years I've been on a journalism contract. But, you know, for the best part of a decade, my life was spent ringing accounts departments of newspapers and magazines because i had no way of paying my rent i remember literally being in floods of tears to a managing editor of a glossy magazine crying on my living room floor and saying you need to tell me what to do because my rent is going on tomorrow and this payment was going to be covering my rent and i've been chasing you for mm. three months i don't need your apologies i need you to tell me what to do and he had to personally transfer money to me this managing editor this is how bad it is this is how bad it is this is how little writers are respected and this is how much that we think of writing as a self-indulgent hobby rather than a skill in a service what I used to find insane about being a freelance journalist is you you write the work and you know writing is really difficult I think people forget it takes a lot of concentration just like any job any skill that you have it takes concentration experience and skill and you do that you file it and then it was like that was half the job done and then the second half of the job was going on this like Crystal maze style quest of like chasing the money and it's almost like you were doing a tombola or something and if you're lucky you end up with the fee that you
0: were I had to fill in an online the form filling I had to fill in a tax survey for someone the other day to get paid What the heck does that have to do with anything? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's deliberately obfuscating. The Hilo's wonderful editor, Anna, though, is doing something pretty great about it she is she has started a campaign called
1: hashtag fair pay for freelancers which is an open letter calling on the media industry to pay freelance journalists fairer faster and better the three things that she's asking of media companies is an end to payment on publication yeah respect to late payment fees and to update not fit for purpose payment systems which is just like fair and basic and rudimentary so we will um link to that in the show notes because i think just today that campaign has gone live and just a reminder before I finish r- ranting about it some truly truly brilliant writers wrote for the pool people who we've quoted and who has sparked discussions on this podcast and I'm sure that they have made you think or sparked discussions in, in your Adonis life Donahue, Caroline Daisy Sop- Buchanan, exactly robin wilder i mean there are so so many frankie grad and there are so many of these brilliant writers lauren bravo and i am so grateful for the writing that they provided so if you feel the same then please do donate to that page
0: support for the hilo comes from my long-held favorites the luxury professional hair care brand kerastase that isn't empty hyperbole my hair was dry and frazzled thanks to years of hair coloring and straightening and I was constantly dousing it in serum and then I discovered Kerastase in my early 20s and their masks honestly changed my hair's life happily for me there's a whole new raft of products to let my hair live its best life blonde absolute
1: is a new in salon and at home hair care range dedicated to blonde hair As Pandora alludes to, when you have, ahem, natural blonde hair like us, there are two essentials, repair to prevent dryness and tone neutralisation to prevent brassiness. With Blonde Absolute, there is no need to compromise. It removes unwanted brassiness while strengthening and hydrating the hair, leaving it feeling soft and looking shiny. That is no mean feat when you
0: colour your hair. This customisable hair care range cares for all types of blondes, from sun-kissed highlights to balayage to all over icy white tones. God, I love the word baliard. So do I. Visit kerastars.co.uk for exclusive offers to celebrate the launch
1: of New Blonde Absolute, available for a limited time only.
0: Thank you very much to our hair's friend for life, Kerastars. We're not going to catch up on all the news that titillated us over the last six weeks, because the semblance of that episode would be chaotic for CJ, to say the least. In lieu of hard-hitting current affairs
1: nows, And being the HILO's resident press release discusser, I wanted to bring two to your attention, Pandora. The first is on the subject of daydreaming. New research has revealed that much of the nation spends 780 hours a year daydreaming at work, the equivalent of over a calendar month. 11.20am is daydream (laughs) o'clock. Charlie looks like he's right there right now. (laughs) And 780 hours a year is spent in daydreaming. Now, the reason I bring this up, I know it's a little bit whimsical and fay. No, I
0: forwarded it to you because I knew this was prime <laughs> Dolly Alderson content.
1: <laughs> is I always worry that we have lost the skill of daydreaming and that we don't spend a lot of time daydreaming. Because we go on Instagram because instead. Because we're always and other on our phones. Lives. And I'm sorry to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but it is something that worries me in terms of... My own writing. I was listening to Wendy Cope's Desert Island Discs, which I'll be discussing later. And she said, you know, such an important part of writing is dream time. And I just don't allow myself any dream time because I'm so easily distracted now. And the minute that I... It's almost like I'm scared of where my thoughts and imagination will go in in a way that I was so wild and free with my thoughts when I was a kid. Now, it's like the minute I feel myself having a bit of space in my life to do that... Immediately, what I have to do is go onto like Topshop and see what's new in that week, or I have to go on Twitter and make some stupid joke. So I think it's good to know that that the kind of art, and I and I'm now putting sort of systems in place in my life to try and force myself. I think to you start should daydreaming do daydreaming more. o'clock. Yeah, I think you should set your alarm for
0: eleven twenty every day and have ten minutes of daydreaming.
1: How uh, how do you are you a daydreamer?
0: I I think I probably do more daydreaming than the average because i very rarely listen to music i only listen true. to the old french chill or mm. jazz on spotify so when i'm out and about i occasionally listen to podcasts when mm. i'm out and about but i don't listen to podcasts nearly as much as you when i'm out i spend a, that's when i do a lot of thinking mm-hmm. and because i haven't been a great sleeper over the last year or so i do quite a lot of thinking in bed you know i would never no, but that's not daydreaming i know you and me in our disposition so well that's, that's frantic, frantic. worrying yes no i think i do do daydreaming i did loads on holiday i literally oh, that, felt like i'd done like almost like work you know when you're like i've done so much dreaming mm, mm. um but i honestly think i'll do it too let's set let's see if we can i don't know factor in 10 yeah. 10 minutes a day although again knowing us it will be like it's 11 it's 20 i have to date yeah. my next survey is the places in the world that are most
1: sung about can you guess what number one is cj um, I've just actually seen it. Sorry. <laughs> he's seen it in our notes. Sorry. Number one is New York. I actually would have gone with Paris as number one. I'm amazed at number two. Have you seen that on the set, Charlie? Stop looking at Pandora's notes. Sorry. London calling. <laughs> London is number two. LA is number three. Paris number
0: four. What? The Miami hell number five. Am I doing drinking in LA. I used to think that was swimming in a lake. <laughs> swimming in a lake. <laughs> number five, Miami, Pandora. Come on. Will Smith.
1: Well done. Ah, oh. Number six, New Orleans. Number seven, Rome. I don't know any songs about Rome. Oh, well, oh no. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
0: Nothing. <laughs> Nothing.
1: <laughs> San Francisco, Memphis, Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, Compton. Oh, yeah. Number yeah, 18, sense. Mumbai. Tokyo, Houston, Las Vegas, and Mumbai, Liverpool. It gets quite Milan. low down though. Milan, 10 songs. But it got me thinking about my favourite personal songs about places. And I've decided I'm going to make a little playlist. Oh, you love making those I playlists. I do weekly little playlist that no one listens to. So I thought I'd do one for... I bet people do listen to them. I think like five middle-aged men who follow me on Instagram do, I think. <laughs> I'm doing so I'm going to do one with all my favorite songs about places and link it in the show notes for no one to listen to.
0: Your favorite time-wasting activity that what do we have in the mailbag this week? Dear Dolly and Pandora,
1: this is from Lincolnshire. Happy New Year to you both. When I heard on the highlight that Pandora had acquired a real-life mailbag, I just couldn't resist the temptation to send you up-to-date pictures of your heifer namesakes. The, oh, this is the person who um, named two of their calves after us. The bovine Dolly and Pandora are now almost nine months old, and after a long summer in the fields, they're now back in the warmth of the barn for the water. Have a look at the pictures. Oh, my God, they are so cute. Have you oh, seen? that annotation's a little bit bitchy. What, are you and your French? <laughs> no, she's done a picture of Pandora, who's a gorgeous, like, caramel-coloured cow, who looks very velvety, and it says Pandora. And then there's there's a white one with its head firmly in the trough and it says Dolly busy eating <laughs> look at the other one of you Pandora showing off her lovely bum
0: <laughs> <laughs> look at the other one the oh, have you lost it oh there's one of you and it says Dolly in her fringe I thought you thought that was a bit bitchy because it's just the cow with two pieces of hay and I th- I thought you'd be like I know my fringe is sparse sometimes it just needs a little lift it, it just sparse. needs a little lift it's not sparse <laughs> Oh, they're so sweet. I can't believe we've lost Dolly and her fringe. They're back in the warmth of the barn for winter.
1: They spend a fair part of their day munching on silage, fermented grass, and rolled... Silage. 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 And rolled (laughs) barley. Otherwise, they enjoy a spot of grooming, a fair amount of mooing, and they're really rather nosy and curious. As soon as they see one of us at the window, they're at the gate having a good look. That's like us, nosy and anxious. If they get another mention on the Hilo, or perhaps the Evening Standard again, I'll be sure to let them know. And if at some point in the not too distant future you both fancied a farming special episode, do come and visit. (laughs) That's quite niche. I'd love that. We'd love to have you here on the farm with all the very best for 2019. And thank you both for being a guiding light and sprinkling a little joy into my life each week. From Jess. What a sweetheart.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Jess. And we'll try and put those pictures of Dolly and Pandora onto uh, (laughs) social media you will have a look at some great stuff in the digital mailbag as well this week as sifted through by our marvellous email editor Anna highlights include a picture of a high low listener's toddler enjoying the best ever prawn sandwich from MS. a tale about a summer snog with David Ginola no way of verifying that but it's a very French story and there are cigarettes aplenty a description of our voices Dolly yours is apparently buttery and smooth and mine is like Cremant bubbly and excitable God you sound <laughs> so much cooler Dolly And a heads up about a rather cool resource called Quarter Life magazine that we thought would speak to a lot of our listeners who are having graduation blues or a post-uni panic about life.
1: Quarter Life magazine was set up by Joy and Emily to counteract the crisis experienced by 75% of young Brits. Unprepared for the realities of real life and work after university and with only highly successful and untouchable people to look up to, Joy and Emily felt both confusion and painfully inadequate during this period. To quote them, they say, "'It turned out we weren't alone. "'We found out using Instagram polls "'that only 50% of quarter-lifers feel optimistic "'about their future, and 91% feel unprepared "'by the education system for real life "'and working in the real world.' Also, fifty-nine percent of uni graduates experience a deterioration in their mental health during the year after leaving uni—a year we have named the "lost year." Jesus, I remember that. I think that's really mm. true. Quarter Life features interviews with inspirational young startup founders like Freddie Blackett from Patch Plants, as well as first-hand personal pieces by Quarter Lifers pursuing their dreams and revealing their innermost struggles. What a
0: great idea! I think that's great, and we love Patch. I, I think we've we both Patch. got our Christmas trees for Patch. Yeah. Um, we thought we'd use this episode to discuss everything we've been reading, watching and listening to the last six weeks, as there's been rather a lot of good stuff. Um, well, we're not going to mention everything. We'll name check um, most things that we enjoyed and then talk about some things in more detail. On you go, Panda. Well, obviously we both watched the Fire Festival documentary on Netflix, so we're better placed to start than that. CJ's actually lobbying for Dolly to change her name to um Dolly. <laughs> Up for it. There have been a butt ton of pieces written about the Fire Festival documentary and the danger of influencer culture, which is, to be sure, pervasively dangerous like many aspects of popular culture, but it's not, let's be clear jai bolsonaro um and my favorite of these was josh glancy who referred to fire as a meretricious boondoggle i love josh's writing he's so so brilliant a boondoggle is a wasteful or fraudulent project do you think there are people out there who are called the high low at boondoggle it's best not to dwell definitely
1: yeah, it's up up best on the itunes well. reviews <laughs> anyone who isn't familiar with the story fire festival was dreamt up by an entrepreneur uh who is now in prison for fraud um and it was meant to be the sort of greatest most exclusive most you know swishiest party of all time and uh on an island in the bahamas on an island in the bahamas And they spent so much money on on kind of creating a fake party with the world's highest paid supermodels. They hired the supermodels, got a great kind of music video director, Mm. I think, or film director, to do this kind of small uh, little film, like a package, to advertise the festival. And then it kind of created this Emperor's New Clothes.
0: Well, it literally didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So not only did the tents not get built, that were meant to be there, and the food, you know, didn't get bought in but all those private houses that the models had been promised in order to Mm. come to hospital they literally did not exist Mm. there wasn't housing on that island but that's why i think it's it's it it felt
1: it's very funny it's it's like it's tragic as well, but it is a sort of like faulty. But
0: the towels, whole thing escapade was paid, down parsley. with the sandwich. Yeah, oh, it was God, the, the sandwich. sandwich
1: because they were promised this like incredibly high-end sushi feast. Yeah, luxurious catering experience, and then someone put a picture up of this like floppy little bun with a piece of my, craft cheese resting on it.
0: One of my favourite memes because that obviously is one of the ones that picked up because I actually read this story in Vanity Fair two years ago because Vanity Fair loved covering mm. kind of, you know, sort of failures of social culture and stuff and I read it with great interest so it's interesting now seeing it kind of covered much more mass than it was but the other thing I loved about that is when a meme went round of this like sort of young good looking guy Beam on his face being like, I had a great time at Far Festival because I won my ticket in like a sweepstake at work. So I didn't spend any money and I got to watch really rich people um, have like the worst weekend. Of- <laughs> Because people had paid upwards of like five grand, and they were getting all these like really odd. Because obviously, Far Festival desperately needed more money to try and build the festival. They were getting these really odd emails, being like, "You need to load three grand a day on your on your money band in order to be able to come." I mean, it's you sort of can't really explain what it is until you until but you it's, watch it. it's it's a great
1: metaphor for where okay. we are in life now, with yeah. with the huge discrepancy between reality and and the mirage. That we see on social media, so that's what makes it feel kind of particularly poignant. I think Here, there's a breakout star of the Fire Festival documentary. He was a guy called Andy King. He was part of the of the team that was setting but up, but an innocent part of it, like a yeah, guy, he, that, he was a contractor. Yeah, and he was called in by Billy as to, to sort of help. Because they realised, as the festival was meant to be happening, the closer they got to it, they realised that they had no preparation, no experience, no funds. In, in the, uh, And that this was not going to happen. So he called in, I think his former employer, this He's lovely man called Andy King, and he came in to sort of help save the day. And then there's just this horrific moment where it gets so bad that this is what... He's been reduced. Where it's like the nadir... Of the whole planning of Fire Festival where everything has fallen apart, all the catering, all the accommodation, everything. And Billy, for some reason I mean, I have so many questions about how this was what how and why this was seen as the only option to save the day. But Andy, who is gay, Billy rang him and said There was something to do with all the water wouldn't be released, all the Evian wouldn't be released. So he said, you have to go to the man who's in charge of releasing the Evian and give him a blowie. That should be Evian's new slogan. What would you do for
0: a cool glass of
1: water? (laughs) There are so many brilliant memes. And this man, and he's almost like... He laughs, he's like, I almost... (laughs) He's so flummoxed at himself as he's saying it, he's stunned by the memory. He's like, I went home... And he said brushed my teeth and washed my hands and f- was fully prepared to go suck dick <laughs> to release to release the Evian. It's extraordinary. Anyway, so he's now become he he's so likable and he so he obviously was like
0: just trying so hard to <laughs> to say. I think he was so, and I think he was sort of like and is still completely bewildered how of kind of very, you know, successful event planner or whatever he I know that's not what he precisely is had suddenly become ensconced in this sort of nightmare of a drunk 24 I mean Billy was passed out most of the yeah, time I mean, yeah a drunk 24 year old and Ja Rule's making I think he's probably like oh my god can
1: I ask one question about Ja Rule how did you get the how, no no I actually am more interested how did he fall in with such a wrong crowd
0: how did Ja, he ja Rule make, yeah Ja Rule what how did he make friends with all that lot you make him sound like this, like innocent schoolboy. I'm so, but I literally, what
1: happened to him. I like him all? describing himself as a hip-hop mogul. Anyway, so Andy King has become this sort of beloved internet meme. And you would
0: find the one old-ish person
1: on the documentary. Oh my God, I loved Andy <laughs> King.
0: But I actually think as
1: well that, you know, why he, why he considered doing such an extreme thing is that when he
0: talked about Billy, it sounds like Billy was sort of his protege. Billy was like 24. Who puts faith in a 24 year old to organise a multi gazillion Mm. pound festival? Um, But Andy King
1: has now become this kind
0: of beloved internet
1: meme. And he's also used his fame for good as he has started a fundraising page to have all the fire employees, particularly in the Bahamas, paid who have Weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of unpaid
0: labour. Good for him. And the other great fundraiser that's been set up is by Marion Roll, the Bahamian caterer, who lost out on fifty thousand dollars. um my heart. Um, yeah, that I think a lot of people found that the saddest. But she's currently on over one hundred twenty-five thousand pounds. So she's exceeded her target four times over. And I'm sure, because she seemed very civic-minded and, you know, Mm. community-orientated... The reason she had to pay that money out for anyone who hasn't watched it is she had to pay Pay her 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 staff herself. But I'm also sure once she hits a certain amount, she'll start divvying up with those unpaid labourers who were local men who were building... So you know, a month without getting paid. Um, question for you, because this is one that uh, quite a few people have been talking about this week. Should Kendall and the other supermodels who promoted Fire Festival via just an orange blank square on their Instagram and got paid? I think she was paid the most at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Should they donate their fee? Before you answer, I just because I feel like this is quite an important factor in deciding there was a fire employee on the documentary that said if we didn't know what on earth was going on as people that worked for fire festival they would have had why on earth should the models we hired know and why should they be to blame for this it, and also it's quite kind of societally roped to blame like the young girl at the centre for like something much larger involving lots of men that's gone wrong you know how how surprising that we're sort of reducing it to that mm-hmm. and if Gerald didn't know what was going on to which I say hmm how the hell would Haley Baldwin and Bella Hadid know what's going on but anyway mm-hmm. what do you think no, with that in mind
1: I think that it would—it uh, feels only fair that they should donate at least part of their fee, bearing in mind that they seem to be the only employees who were paid, and that their role—they still did work, they still deserved to be paid for work, understandably. But, but the the work that they did seems fairly minimal in comparison to all the other labourers who've been left unpaid.
0: If I'm honest, I just think as a good PR exercise, apart from anything else, if I was their agents or publicists, I would say, but to Kendall donate fifty thousand dollars start a fundraiser put up one post on your instagram all your Mm. followers will have watched and really enjoyed fire festival Mm. so it's not going to be any skin off your nose yeah okay 50 grand's a lot not if you've been paid 250 grand for an instagram post that you then deleted and honestly like i'm being like the cynical bit part of the publicist here is it's good pr like now it's really important to show yourself to be like philanthropic and all those things if she wants to carry on you know building herself as a very influential young woman that to me is the most obvious advice of all i'm sandra and i'm
1: just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me
0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. And on to another massively popular show. Sex education. God, it's brilliant. I watched the whole thing on a Sunday. I read this morning that they had an intimacy director. Have you ever heard of an intimacy director? No, no. is that a brilliant idea? That's apparently why the, you know, quite complex and kind of sensitive, especially when you're filming with adolescents Mm. and you're covering, like, quite explicit, very sort of sensitive, emotional things, whether Mm. it's, like, losing your virginity or a lesbian sex scene, which... I think when you've got two young girls, you want it to be kind of honest, but not gratuitous. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's like a particular tone that yes, I imagine because you often only see lesbian sex
1: through a male or pornographic gaze.
0: Yeah, and and so anyway, so they had this intimacy director. For anyone that hasn't yet watched Sex Education, it is a um, kind of progressive, mm. optimistic look at. Um, Teenager Sex Lives set in a geographically ambiguous location. It looks like it like a kind of American town. Well it is, it's
1: an American high school and it
0: has all the constructs of those American jackets that we and cycling know. to uh, to school and not wearing school uniform, but there's English accents and lots of English pop culture references like wank and it's, it's on, what's it. It's weird because Not wanking on Watson.
1: Initially that I found that kind of quite that inexplicable the hybrid the cultural hybridity I found it quite strange and it jarred initially and then I was talking to my friend Lauren who said she she'd read an interview with the writer or director and um apparently it's because and I do understand this because there is such a treasured and nostalgic trope of the American teen movie that you associate those high school hallways and varsity jackets with excitement and sexiness and um you know Drama. Whereas with anything that you suddenly put, you know, like bloody Grange Hill or whatever, whenever you put something it's in, an, in really, an English yeah. secondary school, even yeah. fucking Skins, it just suddenly feels you want to get out of there. So For I think I, it's, it's a yeah,
0: really clever not, trope of like the Like you, it really jarred with me. In the first episode, I thought, this is going to really fuck me off. Mm. But then I read two things. I read the piece Lauren was talking about, and then I read two other things that really resonated with me, which is one, that it was just like them being savvy they wanted that cultural ability so that um americans and brits would be able to watch well, that's it. the thing with netflix now as well that, that both of would be able to translated. yeah that both of them would be able to associate with it and it's actually something that porter magazine Netta porter's um magazine do that they use american english which sometimes i find quite jarring as an mm. english reader but they they do it so that it's got you know more sort of mass appeal the other thing and this kind of has more probably because it's slightly less cynical look at it this has more um chuck with me is that they kind of made they plucked the best bits of all the cultures you know the sort of space and freedom of an American high school and the kind of relative independence of teenagers or the look of the independence with our kind of much warmer and nostalgic sort of um and language yeah, yeah and apparently that's done to, ma- to that magical realism is intentional because the sex and and the language around sex and the portrayal of sex and all of it really the whole show is very optimistic It's, totally. it's very progressive i i think that show will be what schools are like Hopefully, in twenty, thirty years, you know, not the attitudes are just not that evolved now, and so they wanted to match that kind of optimism with something really beautiful. And it's interesting because my best friend's are watching it now, and she's doing the turn that I did. She's halfway through, and she's like, you know what, I'm starting to get really into this. Oh, I By episode you. eight, I was hook, line, and sinker, sort of. Um, really taking the baton for them and saying well why can't we have something positive why can't we have something optimistic that looks at sex and the way we discuss it and the way teenagers engage in it and just have this like it's just it's joyful it's really joyful if anyone not familiar with the plot it's about
1: a kind of geeky guy at school a teenage boy who has his own kind of anxieties around sex he is the son of a very successful sex therapist played by Julian Anson and she is incredible in the role and she's very kind of earnest and funny and she's kind of your worst nightmare as a sex positive mother when you're a teenager where you just don't want to talk about, your, about sex to your parents at all. And him and his... And his friends start to get access of, to her expertise through her work and her writing and her clients. And then him and his little friend make this kind of, you know, counselling therapy service for issues of sex and intimacy with all their school friends. So they all learn about sex in this very kind of positive, um, realistic Hopeful, progressive way. So that's what makes it feel kind of so different. They're definitely having a lot more of it than most teenagers. Oh my God. I mean, one thing that made me think like, oh, I can watch this now and love it because I am a semi-sexually active... <laughs> Thirty-year-old woman. If but you watched I, that when you were set- oh, know, it would have made me feel really bad about myself. I think. Yeah, I think it would. I also think, no, the but Sorry, I, just, just to make that clear, that's not that's not a criticism of sex education. Yeah, religion. that's not saying I should make it because of that. I wish it had been around when I was younger because I actually think the way that it talks. About issues with sex, particularly with young women. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's so much would, shame would have really, really helped me. But just because I was thinking back to when I was a teenager, when I was like fifteen or sixteen, I was having so little male attention. This this show brought back this memory that I made up a a boyfriend. Were you the girl in the bum bag? I made up a boyfriend and then
0: created a hotmail address for him and sent myself emails from him you were the girl who pulls out the string of Jurex from her bum bag oh
1: yes, yes that da, is who i am da, da,
0: da. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, yeah that's who i was also my favorite character
1: in sex education is amy who's just so cute and funny and sexy i love her and i did an instagram story just saying i love this character and i love this actress and it could be a chancer who's just lying but a friend of hers replied and said amy's a good friend of mine and we both love the highlight
0: Oh, I love that. That is amazing. (laughs) Uh, What else have you been watching, Panda? I really enjoyed Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the film about Queen. Desperate to see that. I absolutely love it. It's had um, not great reviews, actually, because I think people accused it of being too gentle and um, too sort of like. Basically, they're all really lovely to each other. It's really nice to see, in contrast to the. Bross documentary mm. which people have been you know, open- I still haven't watched them. oh my god Dolly you'll love it We'll get onto that
1: because I want to hear your full report on the on the boss documentary. But in
0: contrast to that, there was kind of um there is a central conflict between Freddie Mercury and the rest of the band members, but there's also this real like this unbelievable love and support for who Freddie is, especially as he, you know, realizes he is a gay man. Um and the most amazing love story throughout it actually is the relationship he has with his ex-fiance Mary. They say like best friends Mm. even when she has a baby and gets married to someone else um and they live opposite each other and I, i absolutely loved it you don't have to love queen to go see it it's fantastic and also i love that the two him and mary the um the actors who play Mary and um Freddie Mercury in the film are going out in real life. Oh how lovely. I love, I love it when, when that happens. happens. John
1: Ronson did a very funny Twitter thread um about that film where he said it was the it's the worst film he's ever loved. He said he knows that there are so many things wrong with it, but he just didn't care because he loved it so much and it made him feel so good.
0: It's also, it's a really funny script. Like, it's very witty in the sad but so there's a bit where Freddie Mercury tells um, the rest of the band that he has AIDS and it's really you know it's really sad but he says I mean he mustn't cry and he kind of gives them he's like let's take a moment to compose ourselves and then there's just this bit where he says really waspishly I just need to get my bitchy little vocal cords in order and it's just (laughs) filled with like really Uh, just great singers I really loved it and it's actually an incredibly feel-good film and I don't I don't know I think and this is a whole different topic that I know Dolly you and I would love to dive into are we getting a bit obsessed with everything being completely factually correct to the letter and like is that getting in the way of kind of some artistic liberty you know for for something to be portrayed as well it's not a documentary it's a it's, it's a reimagining it's not a documentary and, and... I think that we need to be able to like allow some kind of room for maneuver mm. in those stories when they're told cinematically. I mean that's like with sex education, you know mm. it annoyed us both so much that this wasn't completely no, how we've seen really, it like yeah. why can't we allow ourselves to 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 dream a bit? Mm. Why can't it be eleven twenty a m because also there are things where truth is so vital and not
1: telling that truth creates could create something very damaging, but a lot of time narratively it's not the most essential thing yeah. so you know it's important to know when truth telling is vital and when you can leave room for yeah reimagining
0: and then there's nothing that sort of um it's not like obfuscating but it's just an uplifting an uplifting biopic um You've got to us it and the bros documentary which you have to watch so essentially so a lot of people will have seen this I know, but as, for those that haven't, essentially, what it was is it's it's a documentary about Luke and Matt Goss, who were in Bros together 25 years ago. Twin brothers, they were like 1920, yeah. and it was you know it was huge in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, I think it was early 90s actually, 25 years ago. And then they, you know, kind of fell out with each other and um, moved away, and have done different things for 25 years. Luke's an actor and Matt has an incredibly successful show in Vegas. Anyway, they do this kind of reunion concert and so they do a documentary to go with it. And it is unbelievably honest about kind of the toxicity of their relationship, the the emotional weight of being this hugely successful band together and of losing their mother, who they were very close to. They they obviously really love each other, but God, they wind each other up. Mm -hmm. And... Why it has become so popular is because they are both very precious and they are both filled with the most inane, hilarious David Brentian phrases that are, that are kept in completely, um, just kept in without comment. Yeah. So Luke will say, you know, talking about how hard it is to have a reunion tour, um, Rome wasn't built in a day, but we don't have the time that Rome had and it's taking every metaphor and idiom i think we're going to have to insert the bit about conquer's
1: and now you can't even fucking play conquer's in england can we start a petition in, in on a bros,
0: please can we start can on, I on, do what? how that. ridiculous it is that you got you can't play conquer's and if you do you've got to wear goggles that is the biggest problem can't play conquer's in england okay I can, I can live with it Dolly, you will love it. I also, I'm the last woman on earth not to watch it. To I think you it. might be the last woman on earth not to watch it. And tr- trust me, you will so enjoy it. Um, and they've had a real renaissance, mm. I think, from it. And then I also watched, I'm mentioning these because they've had a lot of um, airtime. Air I'm not, so I know a lot of people have seen them. I'm not sure how much I thought either were great. I watched You. I watched which about The Stalker. Yeah, which is a series on Netflix based on a very popular book. Pen Badgley plays a stalker. Um, I suppose we're meant to but I found him utterly odious I couldn't stop watching it but I don't think I liked it and if I'm honest that seems to be the general consensus on this but mm. like also it tried to be literary so like the girl that he's obsessed with has a best friend um, who's called Peach Salinger and yes she's meant to be the granddaughter of J.D. Salinger who wrote Catcher in the Rye and it's it's filled because because the girl he's obsessed with is a writer and like, I think quite a crap writer. It's filled with like these this very kind of pretentious rendering of New York. It all feels really laboured. I'd really love to hear more of what people thought of that mm. because it has been really popular, but I, I think it's riddled with flaws. And I've been watching season six of House of Cards. I
1: oh, think is this without
0: is? Kevin Spacey? Without Kevin Spacey, um and Claire Underwood is now president. Um and I don't I don't wanna give anything more Away about it, but I think it's gonna to have to be the last series. I think I I feel like it's eating itself. Mm. I feel like it's done what Homeland did, where people couldn't tell their elbow from their arsehole by the end of it. Mm. Who was a who was a terrorist and who wasn't. House of Cards is slightly doing that. What about you, doll? What have been your highlights? Oh god, if you say Mary Poppins, it's like your Twitter timeline is sponsored by Emily Blunt right now.
1: Mary Poppins returns has been the most
0: <laughs> like constant thing in my life since we last recorded each other. yeah it's like you've had this torrid affair and i don't really know you anymore because i don't know mary i have dreams about the characters how many times have you been there went
1: to see it at the cinema three times and i'm seeing it again on saturday for a fourth time at the cinema i calculated nearly seven hours of the last three weeks i've spent in the cinema watching mary Poppins. you have her. such an unhappy relationship with like things sleep. you
0: enjoy i don't know why i have to do it i have to do it I have to make do myself. Do you then go off it afterwards or do you hold it kind of in nostalgic? Like when you come out the other side mm. of Mary Poppins, mm. oof, that sounds nasty. Ooh, dearie. Will you think of her fondly or would you be like, can't touch her ever again, can't look at Emily Blunt and anything no, else? No, I will always think of
1: her fondly. I think I have to make myself almost ill with it to stop. So Can <laughs> you know that never the... happen with Wagamamas? No, that will never happen with Mama. God,
0: she looked... um... and for, for the listeners at home, you can't see. <laughs> Uh, Dolly's face, she looked f- sort of uh, revolted by that suggestion. In fact, India, who is my friend, who's the only other person I know who's as
1: obsessed as I am with gets like as sycophantic about things i
0: love it you just can't get it as a she's takeaway.
1: she's gone to we we've gone to see mary poppins returns together twice and the first time we went went for a wagamama afterwards because it's our favorite restaurant on earth anyway she talked less about wagamama and more about why it's such a good not a sponsor by the way um so i wish they were i would serve wagamama at
0: my wedding i think i wish you could get it as a takeaway you can on delivery no, I can't. I'm not serviced. Mm. Oh, oh, God, that's upsetting. It's so upsetting. There are there are more... This is a bit like the Bross documentary bit with the Conkers. There are more upsetting things in my life. <laughs> so, Mary Poppins Returns, in all seriousness,
1: if you are someone who loved Mary Poppins, I think, for me, it's very tied up with weird childhood stuff because me and my brother watched it a lot when we were little. We were both too kids growing up in London we both had nannies from when we were very little there's a lot of personal stuff that's probably not addressed with me that means that I'm very attached to that film and I think that it's the best example of a reimagining and a remake because they they respect the the, the original film so much and but they still have all these twists on all the kind of set pieces um, and there are these lovely little moments that kind of diehard fans of the original film will notice as an, a nod to the past. There's, it, It's an incredibly moving film. I haven't seen it and not cried. Um, all the songs... I've obviously listened to the soundtrack on repeat. And all the songs have these... Re- like, as a parent, Pandas, I think that if you were to watch it and listen to it and listen to the lyrics, you would be so comfortable, the idea of your kid learning about families and life and how to treat other people through these songs there are so many beautiful philosophical
0: um messages within the film i'll definitely watch it when it um comes out i just can't get to the cinema very much because i do believe the power of those kind of films to tell larger stories yes exactly i watched trolls over christmas and i was very moved by that were you yeah there's a lot again it's like a kids film that because kids films do have like Vast ambitions about totally. the stories they're trying to tell. And that does embed
1: somewhere deep within you. Like, that does... Well, that it embedded does very deeply within you. <laughs> I mean, when you're a kid. And actually, there's, there's one moment at the end that I'm not going to say because I don't want to give a spoiler, but anyone who's watched it knows what I mean, where there's, like, a surprise cameo at the end that just makes me cry every single time because it's such a beautiful... Um, comment on the passing of time and passing of time just makes me fall apart so mary poppins returns i adored and i also loved listening to emily blunt be interviewed by terry gross on fresh air um, about a kind of her acting career but she specifically talks about mary poppins returns it's a really really great interview and she talks a lot about how she kind of prepared for that role not by watching the original film because she didn't want to kind of do a bad impersonation of Julie Andrews, but by returning to the P. L. Travers books. And the and the original Mary Poppins is much crueler and much more yeah, vain. I think I remember reading that. Mm. Is her Mary Poppins tougher or did she? Yeah, tougher and, and more eye rollly and, and far, far vainer. She I I think she does an incredible job. Um so Yes, that's all I'm going to say about <laughs> Mary Poppins' returns for this week's episode. I also saw the favourite, which Dying is
0: so good. I loved Olivia Coleman on Graham Norton's show talking about it. She's
1: brilliant. Olivia Coleman plays, well, for me, it was a little known monarch. Others may have known of Queen Anne, um, who is. A fascinating character and had a very very tragic life but the story focuses more on a very interesting relationship she had with her sort of forgive me I don't know the correct word in, in like a regal sense but like her right hand woman the kind, her kind, her lady in waiting her, must be her lady in waiting that was a very kind of hypercharged um kind of sexual relationship with really interesting power dynamics and what happens. And that her, that's played by Rachel Weisz and the story follows what happens when Rachel Weisz's cousin played by Emma Stone comes in and kind of usurps that role. And then I listened to it. It's just brilliant. The way it's shot is really punk and cool and kind of grotesque and moving and visceral. It's totally brilliant and very affecting. Um, And then I listened to her on David Tennant's new podcast, Olivia Coleman, and she said one of the reasons she loved doing The Favourite is only in the land of films could she be able to pull both Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone, which I found very funny. But
0: it sounded hilarious. Like, Nicholas Holt said that for the first, like, two weeks of filming, they had to do the most extraordinary, like, Games like mind games and physical games. Oh, really? And it was just kind of completely absurd. And um, it is, it's got a surrealist quality to it. And Oliv- Olivia Coleman was saying on the Graham Norton show that there's a bit I haven't seen it, but there's a bit where Emma Stone's character fingers her Oh, character. yes, I've heard this. Story. And she put, yeah. and Olivia Coleman just for a lark put a sponge at the top of her legs, a damp sponge, a damp yeah. sponge. And, and when, Emma, <laughs> when Emma Stone reached it, she shot across the room. she's really dirty Olivia Colman yeah when you hear her talk she is crude avatorial yeah so I
1: really really like Olivia Colman and yeah this film this film is
0: one to watch well Fleabag series 2 is coming back which means that Olivia Colman will be coming back in that amazing penis obsessed horrible stepmother Mm. role that she's so good at what have you been reading Panda so I've been doing a lot of reading while the high low um, is off Especially when I was on holiday for a couple of weeks. I read All That Man Is by David Sazali, which came out in 2016. It's nine short stories about what it is to be a man and what it is to be disappointed in the male existence. I can't believe I haven't heard of him before. He's really accomplished, won a lot of prizes, and God, these are good. They're so good. I just ordered all his other work. They are extraordinarily detailed, yet... Extraordinarily spare at the same time, kind of sparse and emotionless, but also hugely emotional at the same time and evocative to read. Actually, he's not dissimilar in the way he writes and draws characters to Sally Rooney in his way of peeling back people with economy. I think you'd love the way he writes. Dolly, actually, they're... Sounds very up my street. Yeah, they're really brilliant short stories. And it is really important to read short stories about maleness. I would say that at the moment there are, and this is a good thing, a great thing, don't get me wrong, a lot of short stories about what it is to be a woman and the complexities of that. Mm. And I, for one, would always like to read more about what it is to be a man, because I've got no idea. Mm. So uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer and I look forward to reading some more of his books there on my bedside table. Um, speaking of what it is to be a woman, I read the number one bestseller in Ireland, Notes to Self by Emily Pine, which has just come out in the UK. Have you heard about this, doll? No, I haven't. It's, I think it, we're going to see quite a lot of press on it. I think there's been a lot of hype because of its success in Ireland. It's six essays. Some are definitely stronger than others, but I particularly particularly loved and I think probably these were the ones that received the most critical praise Notes on Intemperance which is about um, Pine's alcoholic father and the essay Speaking Not Speaking which is about trauma and the truth of her wild child teenage years. I just wanted to read a little bit from Notes on Intemperance. It is hard to love an addict Not only practically difficult in the picking up after them and the handling of those aspects of life they're not able for themselves, but metaphysically hard. It feels like bashing yourself against a wall. Not just your head, but your whole self. It makes your heart hard. Caught between endless ultimatums, stop drinking, and radical acceptance, I love you no matter what. The person who loves the addict exhausts and renews their love on a daily basis. I used to push myself to reject... Him to walk away failing each time. I oscillated between caring for the man who was afflicted with this terrible disease and attempting to protect myself from the emotional fallout of having an alcoholic father. It took years of refusing him empathy before I realised that the only person I was hurting was myself. Mm. You will love these essays. These essays and many essays or short stories that I read at the moment about, as we were saying, the female experience, are billed as being messy and raw. But I feel like that description is at risk of alienating people as well as being almost quite predictable now as a descriptor. Like women can only write about themselves messily... And it's also a really gendered way of describing books. Would Nausgaard, who writes extensively about his own self and life, be called messy and raw? No, absolutely not. And I would actually wouldn't bill Notes to Self as that. What Mm. I would say is that they're really accessible, conversational, thoughtful essays. They, They deal with complex ideas because obviously women and humans and the human experience is complex, but they are not... They're not complex to actually digest and I think that's a real feat mm-hmm. and I think that's probably why they have been so popular and you can just rip through them. Another book I really enjoyed and thought was very thoughtful um, is Small Great Things by Jodie Pickles which came out in 2017 which is um, another book from the Queen of Ethical Dilemma Fiction as she's called about a black nurse who is tending to a newborn white baby when his... White supremacist parents order her to leave the room and say they want her to have nothing to do with their son. When their son in ICU suddenly takes a dip for the worst and sadly passes away, they blame the black nurse who was there at the time mm. for um, not tending to him deliberately, even though she had been told exclusively to stay away from him. So it looks at all things, the loopholes and the pressures on the medical profession um race in America obviously um the kind of white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan and, and the different and the nuances within that community um she pulls at a lot of different strands we talked about Spark of Light recently did you read that on your time yeah off? I read that while I was
1: away and I really really liked it it's a book that opens at Mississippi's last remaining abortion clinic with a gunman who holds a number of people hostage who are all at the clinic for various different reasons and the hostage negotiator happens to be the father of one of the teen hostages. It is quite a heavy and at times quite grim read but incredibly compelling and a really interesting way of exploring all these various mm. corners of debate in a kind of really well narrativized, yeah compelling it's page a kind turning of way as she possibly can be as one yeah author. totally it's not judgmental it's very fair and um it also it has that quality her writing where it is a real page turner but it isn't at the expense of the prose. It still has very kind of delicate and technical mm. prose, which I think to do both of those things can be
0: quite difficult. She's a. I think the interesting thing about Jodie pickett is she's a hugely successful author, particularly in the States, but she is criticised quite a lot. And I think actually some of her literary achievements, the fact that her writing can be quite literary, mm. is overlooked because her subject matter is often so... Thorny and so politicized, flammable, yeah, yeah politicised. That's right. Like, that it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer, mm. particularly when she talks about race. I think, and um, she does so much research, which I think is amazing. Like interviews, every time she writes on these, but she interviews hundreds of people that she is at risk of trying to tick. Boxes because she's so desperate and in a way that I think is truly admirable, so desperately trying to convey kind of a full picture and include yeah. as many people as possible in her writing. Roxanne Gay reviewed *Small Great Things* for the New York Times, and one of the things I do when I read a book that I've really enjoyed, actually, when I read any book, I go and read every single review out there to see what other people have said because I just really enjoy people writing about books as much as I enjoy reading the actual book. And what she said, which I would expect perhaps people to respond. For this to be the response from people who have read the book, is that there is kind of yeah this checklist of issues that have to be mentioned. She feels when she's writing a book about race, but Roxane Gay concedes perhaps there has to be oodles of context and nuance when writing about the interior lives of black people for a mainly white audience. Yeah, that's As she very, says, very true. Jody pickett's audience is probably mainly right and. I don't think it's right that that's the case, but I think that she is right. And as Roxanne Gay concludes, she'd rather read a book by an author who knew too much about the story she was trying to tell, even if at times it feels overwrought, than not enough. Mm. And it's also, it's a really pacey read. She's particularly good at courtroom scenes, I think. She's Mm. really good about the kind of legal dialogue. Um, A couple of other books that I really enjoyed. um, Once More We Saw Stars, which is a memoir... Kind of gets called a grief memoir, which I always think, again, is a bit pigeonholy. It's it's a memoir about what it's like to have loved and to have lost, mm-hmm. essentially, by Jason Green, who's a writer in the States. Um, I think he, he was a senior writer at Pitchfork. I don't know if he still is. It comes out later this year in the UK, and Christ, this undid me. I put it on my Instagram, and I actually Instagrammed one of my favourite bits in the book. He challenges a lot of the ideas about grief, and one of the things he challenges is the altruism of grief that you're kind of this brave hero. And he says, you know, that fades and he doesn't want it to fade. He wants every time he walks through the door for people to cheer him like he's a warrior from mm. battle. He doesn't want to go back, he says, to the mundanity of like ordering a coffee and doing his tax return. He wants people to see him. It's a very self-aware thing to describe. It, it is, to, and, to it's, to and it's filled with stuff like this. It's so hard to read, it really is, and um, a couple of people in my life told me in no uncertain terms that they thought I was being a complete moron in reading it because it is about um a father who loses his uh, young daughter and the slightly odd coincidence of it is that his gorgeous daughter Greta um, looks very like my daughter so reading this was honestly like actually very traumatising and um, I cried constantly for three days and slightly thought that I might not um, be able to make it through the book but I was determined to because I think it's really important to read stuff that really challenges you emotionally or otherwise and it's a, it's a, a, fu- it's a fucking brilliant book. Don't let the cheesy title put you off it's a a really important book and i've just lent it to a friend of mine whose mother sadly passed away because he um travels through so many different stages of grief and it's brilliant and if you want to see the quote i love i put it on my instagram and i also adored becoming by michelle obama like what's that like absolutely brilliant i mean it has sold through the fucking roof millions and millions and millions it will be top of that bestseller list for i reckon Ages. Mm. Um, that was a really interesting sentence. <laughs> i That is my prediction. Ages. <laughs> it will be their ages, yeah, guys. Heard it here first. Heard it here first. Ages. Uh, like everyone I know who's read it, I adored it because it offers so much to so many different people. One person said admiringly that they didn't know it would be so literary. Her turn of phrase is beautiful. Um, like when she cycles through the seasons to talk about relationships. Um, another friend bought it. She's going through IVF, and the big sort of like spoiler of the book to put it in quite crass terms is that the obamas had both of their daughters through ivf i had no idea no no desire. i loved it because it was extraordinarily candid about um and this is something that i would really struggle with uh what it's like um for your career and your marriage for your own narrative to come second not just to your husband's but america you know, Barack's kind of spirit for philanthropy, I suppose, for his mission, mm. you know, which was there since she met him. This was not something that just came into play when he became president, but she she was always going to play second to this grand kind of mm. um, ambition of his.
1: And yeah, she does quite a thing. A
0: fiercely accomplished woman, Michelle Obama. Both her and Barack quit this moneyed world of law where they were becoming incredibly successful to pursue roles in, you know, public service. And you just really feel like now is her time. Mm. She's She is going to be... I think, one of the most influential women in the world. I think she will be like Melinda Gates. I think she will be, who obviously does incredible philanthropic work with Bill Gates. Um, I think she will be like Oprah. I think she will be like, who are other women doing freaking amazing stuff in the world? She'll be one of them. So that's what I would say about Becoming. It will be on the bestseller list for ages and that she will be one of them. One of them successful women. (laughs) (laughs) give me some of yours, doll.
1: I am shouting from the rooftops to anyone who will listen about the book Ordinary People by Diana Evans. Oh God, I made her bring it for me today because she would not stop banging on about this so, so good. Not to be confused with Normal People by Sally Rooney, which is also very, very When you told me
0: you'd enjoyed it, I was like, a bit like, Dolly, I know you really love books, (laughs) but actually it's called Normal People by Sally Rooney.
1: (laughs) Normal People is brilliant and we discussed a while back. Ordinary People by Dana Evans is a very different story, and it's so so good. I really encourage anyone who is looking for a good book to pre-order it now. We'll put that's the pre-order. A bit, that's link. a bit like me
0: saying that it will be in the bestseller list. For you. If you're looking for a good book, just a good <laughs> no, it's in. as in because I think <laughs> I that people don't realise the power of pre-order. And yeah, what yeah, that yeah, does
1: totally for selling power for for people. We're buying big for... on the, we're big on pre-orders here. Yeah, um, because it makes such a difference for bookshops ordering from warehouses and stuff so just if you like the sound of this book go pre-order it and then the day that it's published it will land on your door. It is so, a good how book. wonderful it's about two sets of couples who find themselves um, at respective moments of crisis in their relationship and in their lives um, set around the time of Obama's election It's called Ordinary People for two reasons. First of all, the John Legend, John Legend's kind of defining album, of which that was one of the kind of most listened to tracks of the time, um, is a a really beautiful soundtrack to the whole book and kind of almost not dictates, but it, it kind of helps shape different, stories and different themes of the book as you read it. It's also called Ordinary People because it's a decidedly unromantic view of long-term love. It's a very kind of realistic and funny and very sad and often sort of deeply existential look at the compromises that you have to make when you choose to be in a long-term relationship and particularly choose to have a family, what you give up what you gain the reality of long-term monogamy and and kind of having a, having security of a of a unit and a family um what what you have to give up for that mm. ego vanity spontaneity romance often a sense of freedom um and it's about kind of facing the reality of saying goodbye to those other things and also something that I think people don't talk about a lot about getting married falling in love meeting your person having children is that because we that's often the end of the story for people that's you the end of never happy talk about what
0: happens next no
1: and yeah. and actually like there's something that I think That certainly I anticipate might happen for me there's something that I think people are afraid to talk about because it makes you seem ungrateful or like you're tempting fate or something but there is something very very sad about getting everything you want in your mid 30s or 40 or whatever because well what is there after that and of course there are many 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 other things there are great many other experiences and riches of life but something that's not I think we're so scared of looking at is for a lot of people that is the sublime ending. And when you get it, you, you have like another half of life to live. What the fuck do you dream of? So it's, I mean, even talking about it now, it is, I found it very, um, confronting and I, I found it very, it it was so truthful. It almost winded me. Um, but it's weirdly not nihilistic. It's really very, very hopeful and very moving, and just full of real life, and such a such a, a full portrayal of what everyday life is for the majority of people who um, make a choice to settle down, for want of a better phrase, um, and also it's a great exploration into black identity and the black experience that is very much a theme of the book, and I read somewhere that the author, Diana Evans, wanted to explore blackness without it being um the primary theme of the book yeah and without it being t- tinged with um a tragedy that you often understandably read about when you read about the black experience in this country or in america um and it's more about telling stories of of telling stories of the lives of black people in the way that you often so read about white people, which is more in a, an everyday yeah, way, yeah, in yeah. a domestic yeah. way, in a romantic way, in a um, quotidian way, uh, as well as the kind of um, socio political stuff bubbling underneath. So it's, I it's just so fucking good.
0: wait to read that. It's, there was a bit where you said there about the way in which it talks about the black experience which reminds me of a book that i absolutely loved that i read last year called the mothers by Britt bennett which i thoroughly thoroughly recommend if you like kind of familial dynamic mm. stuff about community like kind of meg wallitzer mm. type of mm, is it similar yeah. to meg wallitzer or very like, would you draw any kind of... Uh, her, I've never read prose quite like hers. Oh my God, I can't I wait. What and, else and have you beat? Pandora's,
1: Pandora's got um, my copy that I took on holiday uh, when I was on my own, so I've already warned her that it's splattered with tequila sunrise. Uh, I
0: it said it's going to kill me. It's all remnants <laughs> of sort of sunny meals and now we're in <laughs> dark depressing London. Um, let's... Um, let's cycle through your other loves I also loved Swan Song by
1: Kelly Greenberg Jeff Cott god I love this book this is a reimagining of real life incidents all based around the writer Truman Capote who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's and who was a kind of celebrated bon viveur of Manhattan upper echelons of glamour and wealth and excitement and culture and the literary scene of the 50s and 60s awesome and it's about how he befriends a group of beautiful Manhattan socialites who he calls his swans Um, and it tells all the stories of his swans and the years that they spent together having various lunches and going to various parties in Manhattan and they would tell him all their secrets and it's about the real life incident of when Truman Capote having gained their trust and their love and friendship for decades wrote a huge expose about them.
0: (gasps) That sounds great. I mean, I loved In Cold Blood and I think often what people... Oh, it's a lot about In Cold Blood as well. And also like Truman Capote, like... shady man (laughs) like his ethics were like not nice yeah it was he's he's often kind of revered without the context i think think, well what's interesting is that
1: this book really it's a big big book and it goes into the complexities of him and and the and his tragic childhood and yeah it's just it's so so good i loved it and particularly if you if you're into kind of 50s and 60s Manhattan culture which I am like there's lots of these lovely sort of whispered asides about the Kennedys and stuff it's just great so it's a reimagining of real of a real life incident mm-hmm. I also loved and I've listened to it twice and told everyone about it the Origins podcast which is an American podcast that is so rigorous it's like a super analytical uh, dive into certain moments of culture and there is a three episode episode uh, strong series which is an analysis of Sex in the City Speaking- oh my god your recommendations are like making me dribble it's so this is so good and they talk to all the main cast members other than Kim Cattrall and Kim Cattrall gets a little bit of a evisceration in the last uh, in the last episode and they talk to um, Candice Bushnell they talk to Dar- Darren Starr they talk to Michael Patrick King basically everyone who created that show they do a deep dive of analysis of, Cannot of how they created it and it's so good my favourite person is Chris Noth who just seems to hate the show even though he does so he do, does so with sort of a, a sort of affection but he says things like he just hated how materialistic it was he said in the end he felt that the clothes became the tail that wagged the dog and he felt like it turned into a costume
0: drama that's sort of I was sort of true I watched I realised last week um, Ollie and I realised that we'd never watched Sex and the City 2 you know, oh, the one God, about Abu Dhabi. Mm. Um, it's absolutely hilarious. We didn't finish it. We just watched a bit.
1: I read Putney on Your Recommendation by Sofka Zinoviev. I
0: loved it. Putney, as some of you may remember from when I talked about it on the High Low, is about um, a girl who had a relationship with a friend of her father's when she was underage and very very underage very under and it's looking back at that relationship in hindsight and how um yes how you retell stories and how you tell stories and lies to yourself so it's kind of a lot about storytelling as well mm, as kind of obviously yeah. yeah and and it's also set
1: in 70s uh london and a lot of it is an examination of a culture that people talk about in the 70s in particular in a way that sometimes irritates me because it wasn't like ancient Greece, to mm. quote my friend Ed Cribbs, I love when you say that. Like it was this orgiastic time of like, you know, total zero morality, which just isn't true. But there there is a, an interesting, insidious culture of that time, particularly around gender, that, that she kind of explores. And I just, I found it a really, really interesting and truthful exploration as to why someone who has been abused might for a while feel a level of Stockholm Syndrome to the person they felt loved them. And that's an uncomfortable thing to go to dig into in a story. It's, it's very, very brave of her um, to look into those kind of uncomfortable, distasteful truths. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. Fellow fans of Nora Ephron, I found a brilliant kind of consolidated selection of the best long reads online about or by Nora Ephron, um, which I will link to in the show notes. And it took me to a brilliant piece on Vanity Fair, which is the oral history of You've Got Mail um, and the directors and the writers and the actors all talking about what it was like to make that film. And I love that film. I think it's the perfect rom-com. So that was a lovely, lovely read. I adored Lauren Bravo uh, for foodism, uh, speaking about uh, traditional food of love for Valentine's Day. She's one of my favourite people to read on the subject of food. And um, this article is as evocative and lyrical and moving and funny as she always is. Here's a quote that I particularly loved. Ask around as I've spent the past week doing, and it becomes clear that properly romantic food is the stuff of spontaneous picnics, not exorbitant set menus. It's the bacon sandwich lovingly presented to soothe the hangover you haven't admitted you had yet. It's somebody yelling, Wait the garnish! and lavishing a fistful of coriander on top of your TV dinner. It's a bowl of noodles thrumming with garlic, safe in the knowledge that if you both eat them, you can still snog afterwards. And it's ducking out of the rain and into some backstreet bistro with white clean tablecloths that you will refer to ever after as that little place we love, even though you've never actually gone back. Of course, food evolves as relationships do. Over time, individual souffles give way to ice cream on the sofa, two spoons doing battle for the last chunk. Sexy lingerie is replaced by trussed up chicken. Your heart melts instead at the sight of late night leftovers with a plate on top to keep them warm. At some point you will eat dinner in a bare room using two cardboard boxes pushed together as a table and it will feel like the most exquisite meal you've ever had.
0: You write very similarly, Lauren oh, I wish you. I wrote like Lauren
1: Bravo. I think she's brilliant. That's the highest compliment of all. I loved listening to the poet Wendy Cope on Desert Island Discs and I'm very sad to say that I'm, I haven't been hugely familiar with her work up until now. Uh, I think actually on a Hilo episode... Ages and ages ago, I read a poem uh, called "On Waterloo Bridge," um, which is the only poem of hers that I knew and loved. But it's her desert islandist is beautiful, and she's so honest and talks about very kind of uncomfortable things, including a um, difficult relationship which she had with her mother, and how people in the world of poetry are incredibly kind of snobbish around her work. And it's opened up a whole new world of Wendy Coke poetry for me that I love. The Orange by Wendy Cope. At lunchtime, I bought a huge orange. The size of it made us all laugh. I peeled it and shared it with Robert and Dave. They got quarters and I had a half. And that orange, it made me so happy, as ordinary things often do, just lately. The shopping or walk in the park. This is peace and contentment. It's new. The rest of the day was quite easy. I did all my jobs on the list and enjoyed them and had some time over. I love you, I'm glad I exist. Oh, that is isn't that lovely. beautiful? Just about yeah. kind of reveling in, you know, the joy of everyday things.
0: Yeah. What else have you been enjoying? I read My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshfegh. You read that,
1: right? I found it catatonically depressing, but I loved it. It's
0: a strange book. I mean, she's definitely polarising. I... She's got a new essay out in Granta, which I'd love to read. i just took out a subscription to the Paris Review, um, which I'm so excited about because a lot of my favourite authors um, have written essays for the Paris Review. Um, Sally Rooney's written one, mm-hmm. Isabella Hammam, who has just written The Parisian, which has had a lot of kind of pre-hype. I mentioned it in our essay before we went on a break. Haven't got around to it yet cause it's a big book. But anyway, I wanted to dive into that. I'd also love to take out a subscription to Granta, but, you know, these things cost money. Anyway, she's written a Granta essay about... Um, a sexual experience she had when she was a teenager and you know an inappropriate inappropriate sexual experience she had um but the power of women and she has said you know I think the the great thing about all the stories we're telling at the moment about um women and kind of sexual experiences they have is that we need to be able to tell different kinds of stories so it sounds like it's probably quite a controversial essay yes. um, but I look forward to reading that because I think there's you know absolutely room for totally. and should be all perspectives and safe in her hands as well I think she's yeah. a bold bold writer it is a, yes it's, it's, it's an odd book I wouldn't say it's for everyone it is yeah catatonically depressing oddly moving by the end because she's yeah um, not a likeable <laughs> not a likeable protagonist but anyway interesting book I'd quite like to read Eileen which is what she's shot to fame with but apparently that's even more hard to read. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not to say I won't. I am currently reading, and I am loving it, Duped by Abby Ellen. I have learnt so much. It's based on a true story by the New York Times journalist, Abby Ellen, um, and she told it recently. I think she's been in the Times, Telegraph, New York Times. She basically fell in love with a man that she calls the commander who was not who he said he was. You know, he said he was sort of a CIA CIA spy and um, all these things. Anyway, she found out after a year that it was all a complete lie and she was engaged to him. And she's like, how does a kind of intelligent, investigative journalist like myself get duped? And it looks into all kinds of Deception, you know, from the fudge factor, as she calls it, which is um, the idea that 15% of us lie all the time, to the deceit continuum, to imposterism, emotional fraud, cognitive dissonance, living double lives, tons of fascinating case studies. i love to read that. Oodles of... Other books, specialists, um, very witty and readable. It's something we read about time and time again. And we actually cover it on the Hilo fairly regularly. Anna Delvey, Belle Gibson, Rachel Dolezal, Mm. people telling, you know grand lies about their life and then it's also white collar crime like the mad uh the ponzi schemes um bernie madoff men with multiple families more typically men than women she says not sets, say not sometimes women but it is more typically men it, it's fire festival for goodness yeah, sake yeah exactly um there was just this one bit that i wanted to read out The more I listened, the more questions I had. Questions about why is this happening? Why do we keep hearing these kinds of stories now? Is it because, as a culture, we talk more about deception than we used to? Or are there more pathological liars lurking about? Is it simply fear of missing out that propels people to do whatever they want, others be damned? Does the internet, with its alibi networks and untraceable Bitcoin and disposable prepaid credit cards, make it easier to pretend to be someone else? Um and there's lots and lots of kind of exploratory and observational um and anecdotal uh, narrative in there you know it's it's, it's, it's such an it's mrs wilson time. it's oh yes exactly it's such an interesting time
1: as well to be talking about our relationship with the truth because i just think the truth it's kind of you know semantic meaning it's well, just, it's just shifting it's there's just shifting it's really
0: interesting to me writing this essay about authenticity there are bits that i've taken from what she was talking about about truth and the role it plays and yeah. and how that relates and where, to how, authenticity. We, how we value it now yeah no, not that much. and how we and how we live our lives well we think we value it a lot yeah um another weepy i enjoyed was the tattooist of auschwitz which has been a massive bestseller yeah. it tells, tells the true story of lael and gita who met at um auschwitz Birkenau now the concentration camp in 1942 came out a year ago and again has been on the bestseller list for ages ages um the truth of it has been called into question which is sad but perhaps inevitable um heather morris the author defended it as not as the story about the holocaust but a story
1: yes exactly i think that's such an
0: important thing to point out and she spoke extensively with Lale about his life over three years it was originally a screenplay actually before she turned it into a um, book I think with a piece of history as sensitive as that it's always probably going to be ground ripe ground for criticism so I think it isn't surprising that there have been people that have um, refuted you know claims in it but it's a, again you know it's, it's a devastating but really uplifting thing and as I said earlier about reading Jason Green's memoir um, just because things aren't easy to read doesn't mean we shouldn't read them mm-hmm. lastly Vox by Christina Doucher it came out last oh, year oh I read that while I was away did you yeah. I, I enjoyed this I'd, I'd kind of you know stalled reading it uh, another piece of dystopian feminist literature and I thought do I sort of want to read another thing like this right now um, it's about women who are limited in how many words they can use a day the premise is brilliant it's it's very Handmaid's Tale I found it actually more than anything else I've read um, with this kind of dystopian disto lit as I call it I found it impossible while reading it not to imagine it on TV it did so feel so
1: funny you should say that because that what I took from it is when I read it it was like reading a screenplay
0: yeah, I think I didn't it would... feel like I was reading prose. And it did really feel like how Tale. Tell, I really saw it on screen in that way. But I think she did manage to create something entirely new with that sort of um idea. I read a great piece on Vulture about why we are so obsessed with the FM right now and what it says about the lives we are living and it's really interesting and I will try and remember to link that in the show notes. What about you, Dol? What else have you loved? I read a lovely and funny
1: and sad and informative book called bottled goods by sophie van luellen which is quite a short story um about a woman living in communist romania whose brother-in-law defects to the west and the knock-on effect that that has on her life and the life of her husband and family well, and you don't re- you normally read it from the escape escape not the and it's behind it, it's it's um got this kind of lovely almost magical well there is a kind of very surreal twist at the end that weirdly I felt so on board with when it arrived but it almost reads like a sort of Wes Anderson film because it it it, the story is told in almost vignettes and it's just really quick and enjoyable to read about a world that I know very little about so I was very grateful to kind of be more illuminated on it and it was yeah just a really enjoyable read so I loved that. I listened to Alison Janney on WTF with Mark Maron, (laughs) and I think it's one of his best ones. I love Alison Janney. She is such a chick. She's like the coolest person I think I've ever, ever listened to in an interview. What's she been in um, since the. She was in Itonia, Lady Bird, Drop Dead Gorgeous, one of my favourite films, Juno. Um, But the reason she's so interesting first of all she's just like a fucking rock star yeah she's she's badass she she does not give a shit what people think of her and it's not but it's so charming and it's not affected and you can you can still tell that she's like such a truly decent person like one of the first things she says is she's like oh i'm really worried about this interview mark's like "Why?" and mark is so into her and she says i'm just not a very good talker i'm very good at listening and like I really believed her and she said that she obviously just feels like in life she's someone who's much better at absorbing mm. rather than transmitting mm. so she's she's not you know unlike yours truly she's not someone who kind of likes the sound of her own voice you can really tell that when she's speaking and when she's telling stories and she talks a lot um, about what it's like to have late life success I mean she was in her Mm. late 30s which is not late life success but in the world of acting it really is and about kind of how she knew that the certain look that she has also I had no idea she's six foot that she said that she knew it would only make sense once she was out of romantic lead or ingenue territory but it meant that she had this like her life's been in two halves because she didn't arrive to acting until that point Mm. so highly recommend that really funny interesting honest interview My beloved Diana Athill died while we were away. Um, Anyone who doesn't know Diana Athill, she was a publishing genius. She published the likes of Philip Roth and Margaret Atwood. I think she was 101. 101 when she died. And she was writing right up until she died from her nursing home in Highgate. Louisa McGilliguddy, who is an editor at Style, did a lovely tweet where she said that, I think a couple of years ago... Diana Athill wrote a piece for style and she said that she wrote all of it by hand and sent it in the post from her nurse home in Highgate. And she's someone who is known for her memoir writing. She wrote a series of memoirs when her kind of publishing career finished um, about her life and she is brutally honest. I read a lot of her and listened to a lot of her when I was writing Everything I Know About Love because I wanted to remind myself of how important it is to be brave when you're when you're writing the truth about yourself because she really is um, a pioneer for that and she she talks about and writes about the most fundamental and simple truths like the most basic truths in with such precise and elegant prose but makes you think about these truths in a new way
0: well she was a hugely privileged woman but she was very liberal you know her Mm -hmm. ideas about private school or about privilege and i think that's what you instagram did yeah. you is her on privileges she did not write or think or live the life that those from her background or her peers would expect her to have and that's yeah. what made her i think yeah a brilliant writer
1: yeah exactly and she there are so many when she died there were so many pieces last week that ran that kind of ran all these beautiful nuggets of wisdom for anyone who wants to Explore her writing. I have to say, actually, the way that I discovered her was through a Lenny Letter piece, where one of the Lenny Letter writers went and interviewed Diana. R.I.P. as well. Yeah, um, and but that can be read online uh, in the archive. The piece she wrote for Style is is, is again a couple of years ago is very brilliant. Uh, her desert island discs is a beautiful beautiful episode and the telegraph last week ran a piece of some of her best bits of wisdom which i'd like to share with you now she said enjoy yourself as much as you can without doing any damage to other people i write for fun rather than to cure myself of something and that was a very nice discovery i made in my 80s i felt like that really rang true for me that kind of um that mission of exploration rather than to kind of come up with some true, you know, divine truth about herself or about life. I think sometimes writers put too much pressure on themselves to do that. She said, this is kind of her more old-fashioned take on the idea of mindfulness. She said, looking at things is never time wasted. If your children want to stand and stare, let them. When I was marvelling at the beauty of a painting or enjoying a great view, it did not occur to me that the experience, however intense, would be of value many years later, but there it has remained. And finally, something she said that I just think is so important I'm trying to hold so close to my heart right now in my life and I've written it out and put it on my wall. She said, generally, office and home were far apart and home was much more important than office. I was not ashamed of valuing my private life more highly than my work. That, to my mind, is what everyone ought to do
0: oh lovely and I love that you've written it out and that seems a very nice note to end the Hilo on thank you so much for listening to the Hilo you can rate review and subscribe on iTunes it helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts <laughs> you can tweet us at the Hilo show and email us the Hilo show at gmail.com and if you tweet or email us to ask where the show notes are we won't reply and we will put our head down the loo and you can write to us how to- exciting to get into the physical ye olde mailbag um, at Grace O'Leary at Independent Talent and we will put the address to that as well in the show notes. I really hope we remember to put everything in the show notes that we've said we'll put in the show notes but if we don't put it in the show notes you'll be sure to tell us. Bye-bye. I'm sorry to do this. We are going to play out with Mary Poppins Returns. you don't on to forever oh